Good evening, friends. So from my role, uh, there's a certain amount of buildup in the talk. Um, I think there was a teacher at the FR recently described the Dharma talk like this monster that was hovering for battle you know, a few days each week before having to give a talk, like, like the monster was lurking. And that still happens in my mind, like the monster of the talk is coming. And, uh, <laughs> and now it's like, I'm here and I'm like, where's the monster? Like, <laughs> who's the monster? <laughs> so. I was just reading a quote, another quote by Pema Chodron. She said, uh, how to stop making such a big deal of our problems. It's just so classic Pema Chodron language. You know, because our problems are a big deal to us. Yes, I don't want to take that away from you or from me. You know, when a problem is there, it's a big deal. It's kind of feels monumental and uh, hard to get around it. How many monsters are lurking in all the corners of our minds? Given there are so many of us, there's probably a few thousand monsters here as well. This process of befriending, getting to know what's here. We talked a little bit this morning and the the question about uh, the recollections of death, change, getting older, illness, and then death at the end. Yes. Thinking how we are really united in that experience, it kind of binds us all together. You know, so we are all a few breaths closer to death now that we spent this day together. It makes us family. <laughs> Those recollections are um, 
in some ways very touching. Because it's undeniably true, these recollections. And yet on one level it may feel as if it's more pleasant to not uh, bring these to mind. It's easier to not think upon these things. And the question that was raised was, how does this not lead to a sense of pessimism and despair? Another teacher commented that someone in one of the interviews mentioned a rephrasing of that exploration as given given the truths of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and out of control, not self. How do we make this a path of happiness? How do we move towards happiness given these truths? And clearly the path of practice, the Dharma, doesn't lead to a downward spiral of uh, heaviness and depression. I think if the people that we have learned from kind of had their heads really, you know, it's like just all hunched over and we were like, well, this sucks. (laughs) nothing lasts you're going to lose everything (laughs) right that wouldn't that wouldn't that wouldn't lead it anywhere we would we would uh, we wouldn't be here (laughs) I would run away (laughs) I think it's quite inspiring when we see, uh, you know, we see one another, those of us who are really committing ourselves, you know, and we all are committing ourselves to the practice. And we'll go through periods that feel really heavy. That's part of the process. But the general movement, the general trend is one of increasing lightness. putting down the burdens. It really kind of captured my attention when I had heard uh, the first Westerners that came across Ajahn Chah in the forest. And just the description of how they were living, 
There was, I don't even know if there was any electricity. There was no amenities really to speak of. The food was atrocious, at least to the Western palate. And probably, I think that area of Thailand also is very poor. And it was shocking to this uh, young monk that Ajahn Chah and a few of the other disciples there were some of the happiest people he had ever seen. And so how is that possible? Because our normal pursuit of happiness is in a different direction, takes us in a different direction. I had a hope to talk a little bit about emptiness uh, tonight. And to be honest, every time I tried to think about emptiness, honestly, my mind kept going empty. And (laughs) that is not the meaning of emptiness. Um, Emptiness means something very different than (laughs) drawing a blank. Uh, (laughs) But there's something about that kind of topic that is talked about in a lot of different ways. My uh, particular uh, study was mostly through Utejaniya, Saito Utejaniya, and there you know, I did searches in his book and they never, you know, it never comes up, emptiness. I think one yogi asked about emptiness once. But his languaging is much more around seeing experiences nature as causes and conditions, processes of mind and body. What that really points to is when in the Dharma we say empty, what we really talk about is empty of uh, self, an idea of self, or empty of permanence, something that is continuing on. I was thinking about uh, taking a step back from life and looking at how is it that we got here.
got here in the sense of being embodied in this current manifestation, you know, and each of us now, we're alive, right? We didn't really ask to be, at least we don't remember it, I don't remember asking to be here. And here we are. We're not quite sure how that process really comes about of a being arising in consciousness, taking shape, and then there's an identity that gets formed. And then through the conditioning process, we become really the center of everything that's arising in our experience. There's a sense of a vortex into which every experience seems to be pulled. Like the gravitational field of the self is very powerful. And in the Dharma, this is one of the manifestations of delusion. We own experiences, we own processes, we own our emotions that we're not choosing to have. We own our thoughts that most likely we're not choosing to have. And so in the midst of all these processes, these causes and conditions, the sense of self continues to arise. You can notice when the sense of self is really strong, how does experience taste? And the opposite of a very strong sense of self is well, just the absence of that, the mind that is simply knowing and acknowledging experience. There's one description that I thought was very beautiful that the Buddha gave as an analogy. This is more in the terrain of when metta is arising in the mind and heart and it's Uh, the sense of boundlessness, just this well-wishing, radiating (coughs) well-wishing. And the description that he gave was of a painter with paintbrushes, with a paintbrush loaded with paint, but without a canvas and kind of drawing in, in the sky and asking the nuns and monks, would there be a painting left behind if 
one were to do this, just wave the paintbrushes in the air. And these very wise nuns and monks said, no, there wouldn't be a painting left behind. In the same way, he said, when some quality like aversion arises in the mind and it's met with an open, spacious quality, there's nowhere for it to land. It doesn't grab a hold of anything. And our habits of mind that are more contracted, right, that are, that lead to our sense of struggle, the afflictive emotions, defilements, they need to land on something or we need to grab a hold of them. And this is, we almost can see it and feel the mind getting narrow and reduce down when, when there is an afflictive emotion, just recognize how the mind feels. Does it feel narrow, contracted? And then what happens when we begin to not make a problem of it? It's being known, being sensed and felt. kind of line that Pema Chodron said, how do we not make such a big deal of our problems? One of the hard things to notice is that we are actually, or the mind is making the big deal of it. I find that just so fascinating that even though conditions or habits of mind are leading to a sense of struggle, the mind still does it because it's what's familiar. It's what we know. And these are the habits of fear and anxiety or contracting and resisting. And when we hang out in the Dharma field like this long enough, um, 
I find the mind makes associations and, and metaphors and uh, things start to, it's like we see the Dharma uh, manifesting in different ways. Someone was noticing the bell ringer, how uh, you know, there are three bells in one building and I think maybe four bells in another building or eight bells and and then inclining the mind to reflect on, oh, three bells, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and then four bells, maybe the Four Noble Truths. And so I had my own version of this and it's like culturally uh, relevant or culturally uh, uh, impacted by the conditions in, in Burma probably true in a lot of Southeast Asia where there's a lot of rains that come and go. Uh, Ants um, become a big part of your experience. Just ants walking around everywhere. Um, For a while I was really battling how how to keep the ants at bay. And there's all these little tricks. Apparently white chalk, they don't like to cross white chalk. So you'd see all the monastics draw like these rings around their uh, seating sitting areas and uh, just to keep one safe from ants. I spent a lot of time watching uh, single ants traversing across the body, just tracking the sensations. Just kind of mindfully watching Crawling, crawling, tingling on the face. <laughs> I think I had too much samadhi at one point and not enough wisdom because I allowed it to crawl onto my eye. <laughs> <laughs> and it chomped right on my the uh, pupil. Excruciating. The head actually got lodged, and the, the jaws were, were were clamped right on the. And I looked in the mirror, and <laughs> I thought I'd have to get surgery, but it passed. <laughs> Anyways, that wasn't the story I wanted to share. <laughs> so ants figured prominently in my experience, and so as I was sitting at one point, um, I had this image of a line of ants being the passing experiences that are going by. And what our mind tends to do is shine a light on an ant. And it gets magnified and blown up. And on the wall behind it is then this giant monster of an ant. And we take the monster and we stare at it, this big ant, and it becomes fixated, fixed in the mind. And I could see that this is what I was doing with any experience that I found difficult or unpleasant. Even just physical pains, but then also emotional states. 
and through the process of being identified or resisting and reacting to these passing phenomenon, I was getting overwhelmed by what was really just a process of experience. And we're doing this all the time, the things that look like enormous problems, we're making such a big deal through simple steadiness of learning how to bring attention to what's actually arising. And we use the wisdom in our mind to remember what it is we're observing. You'll never find the thing that looks so scary. And this is what the Buddha was in some ways pointing to and saying things are empty. There's no thingness to grab a hold of. Often in my practice, I would be at an edge or a limit of something, feeling as if I can't endure or it's got, really got me. I would just stay with it. What is this? What is it? What is this feeling? Where is it? Can I really grab a hold of it? It's really remarkable that behind any experience, there's nothing there. In the sense that it doesn't last. There's nothing that we can really pull out of experience and show someone this, this is this thing. And again, that's not to in any way take away from the dukkha that we do experience, the heaviness of heart and mind. You know, the Buddha didn't just walk around and say everything is empty. He spent, you know, from the moment he awoke in, which apparently happened when he was 35, and then passed when he was 80, so for 45 years. All of his time was spent in compassionate activity and really trying to help beings to find a way, find a way through this morass, the quicksand. I heard a quote recently uh, by Jocelyn King, who apparently was one of the early women that arrived uh, from Asia before even the founders of IMS and Spirit Rock. So real um, pioneer in the Dharma. And she said, 
better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness. It's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness. And usually somethingness to us, it's very solid. And that's how we perceive experience, things are very solid. Or we feel things are very solid. And we forget so quickly that we're in an unfolding process of experience. It's kind of paradoxical that this sense of emptiness or non-permanence, non-concreteness could give such a strong foundation to stand on. And this is why when we do really live in the characteristics, the understanding of the characteristics, that things are changing, they can't provide kind of ongoing satisfaction. And they're truly just processes that were not in our control for the most part. The firm ground of opening to that, witnessing it, allowing what arises to arise. And this is where the mind can find an end of conflict
And since we're sitting quietly anyways, just in this topic, you might sense into your own experience where the sense of self feels strongest right now. There's kind of a emotional core in my body mind that I tend to identify with. in the flow and changing experiences. Another place that we do identify with is that knowing quality. This uh, flow of experience can also reveal that the knowing mind or consciousness, it's also changing, it's always changing. So I used to reflect on if I knew mindfully a, a moment of experience and it became a snapshot if it was frozen That's all there would be, it would be stuck. It's like time would get stuck. But since experiences are always contacting the knowing, contacting consciousness. So it's always changing, it's new. And this is the, uh, the aggregate that the Buddha was pointing to is the fifth aggregate. And he likened it to a, a magic show. Our mind gives rise to the world through consciousness. And it's like a display. Seeing, hearing. Knowing emotions. 
you know, so at times we can just tune in to different parts of our experience with some interest. There's nothing that we're needing to create. It's not a, it's gonna take work to have our own experience. You know, none of us woke up and said, okay, now I have to make the world arise. It just, it's happening. Wake up and then having experiences. And just remembering that I had been hoping that that would be uh, a launch pad to actually talk about um, the activity that that gives rise to this uh, understanding of not self and emptiness, how that actually frees the heart to engage in the world. Um, that it's not then a kind of care, uh, careless or carefree experience, but that actually the energy arises out of that space of not being stuck and uh, caught in the vortex of the self-view. There's an energy to be available and to respond to the world. And there's an analogy in Tibetan Buddhism, I think, of a bird flying, and it's the flight of wisdom and compassion. And that these two take, uh, when they're expressed, they give flight, give flight to the awakened mind. So I'll save that, uh, that exploration or another, another time. So we can just sit uh, quietly for a few more moments.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.